0: It's Friday, everyone. Good morning. We are so glad you're here with us on CNN this morning. I'm so happy to be joined by my friend Erica Hill. Good morning. Good morning. Nice to be back with you. Nice to have you. But we do start with sad news as we get to five things to know for this Friday, June the 16th. A deadly tornado ripping across the Texas panhandle surrounding cities along with the state's governor. Now rushing in aid to the devastated town of Perryton.
1: Attorneys working on former President Trump's classified documents case need to reach out to the Justice Department by today to get security clearance. That's a first order from the judge who is overseeing this case. It also underscores the sensitive nature of the documents. that The former president is accused of withholding.
0: Multiple U.S. federal agencies hit in a global cyber attack run. It's alleged by Russian criminals, according to a top cybersecurity agency. The agency warning the government isn't the only target that hundreds of American companies could be at risk.
1: Secretary of State Antony Blinken set to take off for China later today in a trip aimed at warming up the frosted relationship between the two countries. It also marks the most senior visit to China by an American official in five years. New questions this morning about whether that
0: big merger between the PGA Tour and Live Golf will actually survive. The Wall Street Journal reporting the Justice Department is looking into that partnership over antitrust concerns. CNN This Morning starts right now. The sun is about to come up in Perryton, and we're going to see the devastation from these deadly tornadoes. Extensive devastation there. And deaths. Yeah, exactly. That is where we begin this morning with the devastating tornado ripping through Perryton, Texas overnight. It that anchor chatter? People there had little time to prepare before the tornado touched down and barreled through the small town of just over 8,000 people. Look at that. Here's what we know at this hour. Three people are dead, possibly 100 more injured. With those injuries ranging from minor to severe, the storm destroying about 200 homes, nearly leveling some buildings. This is just one of several tornado reports that happened across the country. Look at this dash cam video from Toledo, Ohio. You can see strong winds sending debris everywhere as drivers waited for the storm to pass. Right now, Nearly 400,000 customers in Texas, in Florida, in Oklahoma, and Alabama are without power this morning. And hail, lots of it, some as large as two inches in diameter, also raining down from this severe weather. Lucy Kafanoff joins us live this morning in Perryton, Texas. Derek Van Dam standing by at the CNN Weather Center. Lucy, let me begin with you. I mean, it is still dark there, but you can see already behind you the devastation.
2: Yeah, and this is unfortunately just a small slice of the devastation, the utterly devastating destruction that was caused by this tornado. People did not have time to get away. There's actually a local shelter in the library just about a block and a half down the road. Folks did not even have time to get there. So many homes destroyed, hundreds of people homeless, at least three dead, as people here try to piece their lives back together. a deadly tornado touching down in a Texas panhandle, leaving a brutal path of destruction in Perryton.
3: Tornado is just a hundred yards or so right there.
2: Large hail pelted down as the tornado moved through the area. And soon after, a possible second smaller tornado was seen as well. One storm chaser says there was very little warning ahead of this tornado as the funnel cloud formed very quickly.
4: Whenever I was flying around, uh, it looked like people were just having to self-rescue themselves. People were, were climbing out of rubble. Um, you know, there was the fire nearby.
2: As many as 200 homes were destroyed, according to the town's fire chief. And some of those homes were completely leveled, as seen in this aerial video shot in the tornado's aftermath.
5: This whole area is just why
2: one nearby resident drove through Perryton in the tornado's wake and documented the damages.
5: There's tanks,
6: oil-filled tanks. That right there is a, that is a trailer,
5: an oil field trailer.
2: Texas Governor Greg Abbott deploying the state's emergency response resources. The surrounding cities and counties also rushed to the area to provide aid. In neighboring Hansford County, the county judge says they are preparing to assist for a possible mass casualty and or recovery event. The Red Cross is mobilizing teams to offer support on the ground. The Interim County Hospital CEO says it's operating off generators, which can only last for a little over 72 hours. She says the hospital has treated somewhere between 75 and 100 people with
7: injuries. Anything from minor lacerations to major traumas, head injuries. Uh, collapsed lungs broken legs major lacerations um, a little bit of everything
2: And you can see the aftermath of this destruction. People here are going to be picking up the pieces of their life. I actually spoke to one local resident who rode out the storm in her truck. She said, you know, it was hailing. There was rain. There was no time to get away. She said it just formed in the sky and dropped down on us. No sirens. No time to escape. A tragic morning here in Perriton. Yeah,
1: absolutely. With no warning, it sounds like. Lucy, thank you. Well, a local high school has opened its doors to a few hundred people impacted by that storm, offering many who lost everything a place to shower and to sleep as this community bands together.
0: Joining us now is Cole Underwood, the athletic director and the head football coach at Perryton High School. Coach, good morning to you. I'm so, so sorry. What can you tell us about at least the status of your, your team right now and your fellow instructors? Good
4: uh, Good morning. Everybody that I've talked to and that I've been able to make contact with, uh, and and they're working to make contact with other people as well, are safe. Um, our cell, one of our cell towers here, got destroyed, so we we haven't gotten a hold of everybody, but uh, we're working diligently to to try to make that happen. So,
1: um, you know, this is your hometown as well. You graduated from high school there. Now, now you're one of the coaches. We just heard from our colleague Lucy Kapanoff, who said she spoke with a woman who said there was no time to get away. There was no siren. There just wasn't enough warning. Uh, we know how crucial these seconds are with a tornado did you have any warning
4: uh you know it's crazy i I live on the southwest side of town and this tornado hit on the northeast side of town so the, the two miles that separated my house from where this tornado touched down, I, my mom called me and she was like, sirens are going off. And I was like, no, they're not. I can't hear anything. I was, I was at my house and I was watching it hail, but I had no idea two miles down the road the destruction that was taking place until I got out after it, it had passed. Uh, it, was, it was crazy how fast it formed. Uh, one of our coaches is a, a big weather guy. He, he texted us and said, here we go. And by the time that text had come through, it had already blown over. And he was already telling us on on our side of town that we were safe. So it it really was just as sudden as anything could be. And and, uh, to to a lot of people's credit, they found a way to to get to safety. So very thankful for that.
0: Yeah. Right. The lives are the most important thing. But still, just looking at this footage, we just showed aerial drone footage of people walking over what were there houses? Some homes in flames, smoke billowing out. Can you talk about just how much has been lost in terms of people's property and their homes and everything?
4: Oh, uh, I think the loss is unthinkable. I don't. I don't think you can put it really into words. Um, that a, a lot of that area that was hit were were trailers and and, and houses that were older, and so. I think that the the one place that it landed in town was just about as unfortunate of an area as could have been hit. I mean, it's never a, a good thing when a tornado drops down and it hits anywhere. But as far as Perryton's location and the layout of the town, some of those are the older homes and some trailer some trailer houses, and and there was just nothing that they could do. Uh, the loss is devastating. Uh, we we're up here at the high school and have. Shelter, or anything that, that people may need, and we, we want them to know that.
1: And how are people? It, it just give us a sense too, again, of how are people holding up? The folks who are there at the high school who came there for shelter, how are they doing this morning?
4: Uh, I think that there's a, a sense of fear, just of the unknown. I don't, I don't think anybody really has any idea what's going to happen next. Um, the, the shock is still sitting, is sitting in the. the sadness the anger the gr- every every emotion that people can be going through they're going through and um, we we moved pretty quickly to try to make this uh, a safe haven for people to get through here in town and and hopefully it can continue to be that until we we get it all figured out so
1: yeah absolutely if there's one thing that we do see in these moments of tragedy it is the way communities pull together and take care of one another Cole Underwood really appreciate you joining us this morning thank you
4: yeah. like thank great- you.
0: Such a tight knit community, Mm -hmm. 8,000 people. So let's get to Derek Van Dam. He's our meteorologist in the Weather Center. Uh, Good morning to you. It's so scary when you hear that there was no warning, there were no sirens for some people. It just hits like that. What are the threats today?
8: Yeah, well, the storms are still ongoing this morning, Poppy and Erica, on this very highly unusual weather pattern that has set up millions of Americans under the threat of damaging winds, isolated tornadoes and lightning from the Gulf Coast through portions of the southern plains. Once again, can't forget about the east coast as well. Uh, but when we talk about what's happening now, the more immediate threat are these line of thunderstorms that are still associated with the severe weather that moved through the Perrington, Texas region late last night. You can see these storms. That yellow box, that is, of course, the severe weather uh, watch boxes that are in place. But I want to highlight this line of storms moving into Jackson, Mississippi. There's actually a tornado-worn storm that is valid uh, this morning through the next, uh, let's say, 15 minutes or so. And uh, we're going to monitor that very closely. It looks like the tornado vortex signature should stay south of the town of Jackson, so that's good news. But this storm system across eastern Texas still producing uh, winds over 60 miles per hour. The other major Major weather headline that we're following is the extensive rainfall that has taken place in the Florida Panhandle. Pensacola and surrounding areas have received, get this, over a foot of rain in a very short period of time. Flash flood emergencies. There are ongoing high water rescues taking place across this region. Another big story as we continue to watch these storms march from west to east across the deep south. Back to you.
1: Derek Van Dam, thank you very, very much. New overnight, Pope Francis back at the Vatican after nine days in the hospital following abdominal surgery. You see him there smiling. He waved to the crowd of well-wishers as he was leaving the hospital. His doctors say the 86-year-old is, quote, better than before. Vatican officials say the Pope is recovering well and that he no longer feels pain and discomfort. That is great to hear, better than before, the best you
0: can ask for. Meantime, first here on CNN, the federal government investigating a global cyber attack that impacted several federal agencies, including the Department of Energy, this breach being blamed on Russian hackers known for extorting ransom for their victims. Our Sean Lingus joins us now live. Good morning, Sean. How extensive is this damage?
9: Well, Poppy, I mean, this is the kind of thing where that they call prey and spray, where you mm. Get into a software vulnerability, and um, because it's so widely used by companies and government agencies around the world, uh, you, you, the hackers have access to, you know, just, they're overwhelmed, frankly, with the amount of organizations they breach. So, as you said, this is a Russian uh, ransomware gang known for trying to shank, shake uh, organizations down for millions of dollars. They're really quite audacious in how much money they ask for. Not often that they get what they ask for in terms of millions of dollars, but, uh, in this case, we reported first yesterday that um, multiple federal agencies in the U.S. Uh, were uh, breached in this attack, uh, and U.S. officials are saying that they haven't seen any signs of, of ransom demanded of U.S. agencies. It's, it's more of an opportunistic uh, hacking campaign, but we do know that uh, they're going after uh, organizations in the U.S. Finan- financial sector. Uh, as you said, the Department of Energy uh, uh, was the first agency mm-hmm. to come forward having uh, been breached. So. It's really an evolving situation, and uh, if you remember Solar Winds, the yeah. campaign uh, a, a couple of years ago, uh, th- that was different. That was Russian espionage. That was the the, the foreign intelligence agency in Russia. Uh, this is, um, uh, you know, also folks based in Russia, but really financially driven and uh, not something that they're collecting intel from U.S. agencies. It's more of an, uh, uh, an embarrassing situation for federal agencies that they're trying to clean up, Poppy. But
0: expecting to get paid by government agencies or the private companies if they've been hit? Uh, because we have seen private companies yeah. pay.
9: Right, yes, uh, some companies do pay because they uh, don't want the publicity. Uh, they don't want the hassle of cleaning up the mess. They want to move on quietly. Uh, and it's sometimes in their interest to do so, even though the FBI discourages them to do so because it just fuels more uh, hacking campaigns. And in the case of the government agencies in the U.S., um, the hackers kind of cheekily put on their uh, extortion website that, uh, no, don't worry, we deleted all of the government data. We're, we're not right. going to sell that or anything. So uh, it's kind of a um, cheeky nod to the fact that they're, they're saying that they're in those systems, but um, don't come after us, Poppy.
1: Yeah. John, thanks for the great reporting. Uh, with us here is a National Security Analyst, Juliette Kayyem. She, of course, is also a former assistant secretary for the Department of Homeland Security and a Harvard professor. So, Juliet, when we look at where we are, cheekily... We deleted government data, as Sean just mentioned. What is your level of concern this morning? And and what are the questions that you have for these agencies?
10: So uh, the government's trying to downplay it. It's a bit embarrassing. So I'm going to start with embarrassing because just a couple weeks ago, there was an announcement or a a notice to the uh, private sector by the government, by the the cybersecurity experts in government, to be careful of this app. It's called Move It Transfer. It's an app that you essentially are just sort of transferring video from one site to another, downloading it. It's a way that people sort of play around and edit uh, video. So this is what we call a supply chain attack. So you come in through an app and then the licensees all get impacted. And so it's embarrassing because we knew it was a problem and then it ends up being on our networks. The extent to which you know it's vile it's it's uh, a national security concern no one seems that worried yet but stay tuned i mean one of the things is you never know the extent of the infiltration until there's a thorough review but no one seems to be as worried as they are as they were with solar winds which was 18,000 clients yeah. were impacted and that was but for you know, you know for espionage and, and national security reasons right that's a big distinction yeah.
0: not for espionage yeah. but for money
10: yeah but the fact that the vulnerability still exists, isn't that the main concern? Yes, it is. And and that we knew that it existed and then it existed on our own platforms. That is the concern. This is one of the challenges about cybersecurity is that of course, the more that you, you need to be accessible, the more that the supply chain is open. And that's why these what the supply chain attacks end up being the most successful because you're just coming through an entity and then everyone's downloading. This is exactly like SolarWinds. SolarWinds was clearly more sophisticated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's just a vulnerability mm-hmm. that has to be tightened up. It's why when you're in government, you're not allowed to download certain things, TikTok being the most uh, recent example. But for people who just heard that, they're going to say, wait
1: a minute, TikTok is going to expose me to this vulnerability. Yeah.
11: That's no. not what's happening no, no, for no, people no, no. No. It
10: is just a similar that the government would have prohibitions on certain yeah. websites or apps that, that could be vulnerable. It's not just the government. There were yeah. U.S. universities yeah. impacted. When you
1: look Georgia, at this, you talk yeah. about we know that the vulnerabilities are there. Yeah. Is the issue here, I don't want to say it's simple, but in some ways yeah. it is, that we or the government simply can't
10: keep up and how does that change? Yeah, I think it's, uh, well, I think anything that's accessible or open is going to be vulnerable. It's just, you just have to accept that. So then the question is, can we can we stop it? Can we have layered mm-hmm. defenses? Can we um, be notified or know when there's been a breach so that you can close it up relatively quickly? And then what happens on the other side, once the breach occurs, what's happening to the data? Can you find out? Can you can you protect people's privacy? I was looking on some website of potential victims, or at least like the uh, Georgia, University of Georgia had it, and they're just, you know, basically doing a thorough review to make sure things like the student's health information and other things like that are not exposed.
0: Switching gears here yes. because Jack Teixeira who is the yes. Air National Guardsman yeah. who has been accused yeah. of putting all of these private classified documents yeah. online has been formally indicted. You ran yeah. the Massachusetts yeah. Air National Guard. I remember reading your piece that you can't fathom how this happened. The fact that he's been formally indicted your reaction, uh, and where it's, it goes. It's
10: worse than we thought, and I always thought it was worse than we thought. It, it never made sense to me that a guy who has some weird, you know, honestly, he's you know, sort of looking at right wing websites, you know, Nazi paraphernalia, uh, is then happens to just be downloading and stealing classified information that he's just trying to impress people. So stay tuned on that. The government admits in the affidavit that it was that it's worse than any publicly disclosed information, including as they suggest in it. Uh, troop movements of ukrainians and russians yeah which was in real time by the real way. real time right it's like not old That's stuff it was like exactly in real time and then also it's it 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 tells us that allies have been very upset about this suggesting that it's not just our enemies who now know what we're doing it's our allies who are saying you know we're sharing information with you yeah. and this jerk you know over in massachusetts is just putting on websites this goes to two questions one is There was no, the military is trying to justify why he had access Mm -hmm. to that information. It still makes no sense to me. There's no reason that someone had to have had, like him, had to have had access to that much information. But the second is just, you know, he was reprimanded two, if not three times. You know, by the time someone's not listening to you about access to classified information, you need to shut it down. And they just kept giving him access over six, seven, eight months. Uh, important questions, uh, important
1: questions that need to be answered. Juliet, always appreciate it. Thank Thank you. The judge overseeing Donald Trump's classified documents case, issuing her first order with a tight deadline here. What lawyers in the case need to do now and what it means for the timeline here. Plus, the mayor of Miami making
0: his first presidential campaign speech, how he pitched himself to voters. That's ahead. More CNN This
1: Morning to come after the break. There's new reporting this morning in the federal case against Donald Trump. Former president's attorneys have contacted the Justice Department about obtaining the necessary security clearances for his classified documents trial. That's according to a source familiar with the outreach. The judge overseeing the case issued her first order, setting a deadline of today for that reach out from attorneys, saying they all need to reach out to the DOJ about those clearances. CNN's Jessica Schneider joins us live from Washington now this morning. So that process, getting the ball rolling here, how long could it take for that clearance?
7: Yeah, you know, the judge here, Judge Eileen Cannon and DOJ, Erica, they both want this uh, process to move very quickly here. So Judge Cannon's order, first order of business, instructing all attorneys to get in touch with DOJ to begin this security clearance process because uh, our Caitlin Collins actually reported that Todd Blanche, Chris Keis, they have already been in touch with DOJ because, of course, this case is comprised of highly sensitive classified materials that these attorneys will need to get a security clearance in order to work with all of these materials. This order is also significant because it really does show that Judge Cannon, who has been criticized for siding with Trump in a previous related case and whose ability to effectively manage this case has actually been questioned. It does show how she's already getting into motion to manage her docket within days of Trump's arraignment. She really is relatively new to the bench. She was nominated by Trump in 2019, but she will be the one running this massive and complicated case. And she really is taking charge right off the bat by trying to get the the security clearances in motion, Erica, which these two uh, attorneys have already been in touch with DOJ about.
1: Yeah, which is important. Uh, We also know uh, the former president looking to hire another lawyer. Is there a sense Mm -hmm. that that will happen in time to meet today's deadline of reaching out to the DOJ?
7: Yeah. So two of Trump's attorneys, they've already met the deadline. So they've been in touch with DOJ. They now need to alert Judge Cannon by Tuesday that they've done that. But it is clear that her order definitely puts this additional pressure on the former president to get his legal team fully aligned here. Trump does have Chris Keist. That's a former former Solicitor General in Florida. He's on his team. Also, Todd Blanche, they were both in court um, when the arraignment happened earlier this week. But we do know that he's still looking for another attorney. His team has been in touch with Florida law firms, as our team has reported. But, you know, historically, Erica, attorneys have been hesitant to work for the former president. He does have this history of not necessarily listening to legal advice, not always paying the bills. So we'll see who else he's able to get on his team. But we have reported that he's actively looking, especially for likely a third member to add to his uh, legal team in Florida.
1: Erica, right. And we know you will keep us posted. Jessica, to see you this morning. Thank you. All
0: right. Miami Mayor Francis Suarez making his first pitch to voters as a 2024 presidential candidate. The Republican spoke to a crowd at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in California last night. This was just a few hours after officially announcing his bid for the White House. And he didn't directly address his top two opponents, former President Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. But he did pitch himself as a different kind of candidate who can unite the Republican Party.
12: It is time for a next generation leader who has the vision to lead, and the character to connect with everyone by looking at them in the eyes and listening to them, not shouting at them and lecturing them. It's time for a leader who can connect with segments of our country that Republicans have historically lost, like young voters and urban voters, and segments we can make gains with like Hispanics and suburban women.
0: Mayor Suarez is jumping into a pretty crowded GOP field already. In an interview he gave this week to the Associated Press, he did distinguish himself from many of his opponents, though, on the key issue of abortion, including distinguishing himself from Ron DeSantis. Suarez instead suggested he'd support a 15-week abortion ban rather than six weeks. We'll ask him about that and a whole lot more ahead when he joins us in the 8 a.m. hour right here on CNN This Morning.
1: Just ahead here...
13: So we're going to the drone launch site right now. It's obviously extremely dangerous, and we have to watch out that the Russians don't see us.
1: CNN's Fred Pleikin and team there with exclusive access to an elite Ukrainian drone strike team. There with that team as they carried out an attack on a Russian position. We are live this morning in southern Ukraine. There is so much focus on what is happening in Ukraine. Right now, Ukraine's military says they're experiencing partial success against Russian forces, including in the hard-fought eastern regions of Bakhmut and Zaporizhia. Moscow, though, for its part, claims it is repelling Ukrainian troops. Meantime, new overnight explosions heard again in the capital of Kyiv. Several heads of state from African nations arriving there at the time. CNN's Frederick Plankin is live this morning in southern Ukraine. So, Fred, what are you seeing on the ground?
13: Hi there, Erica. Well, first of all, you're absolutely right. The battles here are extremely tough in southeastern Ukraine and in southern Ukraine. And the Russians have really dug in, is what the Ukrainians are saying. They're trying to advance, but the defenses are really strong. However, what the Ukrainians say they have and what they believe, one of their main advantages is is elite drone units that go in the middle of the night to hit high-value Russian positions to try and take those out and help the Ukrainians advance. We were able to go along on a mission of one of these crews, and here's what we witnessed. A 3D-printed stabilizer fin, some plumbing tubing, lots of glue, and the bomb is ready. Then it's night vision goggles on, lights off, and full speed ahead to the front line. We're with an elite drone unit of Ukraine's security service, the SBU, and the patrol police, looking to take out a key Russian anti-tank position with a precision strike. We, we found this target only recently, a team leader says. It was discovered literally today, and today it will be destroyed. So We're going to the drone launch site right now. It's obviously extremely dangerous, and we have to watch out that the Russians don't see us. Speed and precision are essential. The drone, a quadrocopter on steroids, able to carry a massive payload up to 45 pounds. In this case, a mortar shell the Ukrainians say they got from retreating Russian forces elsewhere and are now using to hit Putin's army.
14: Now we finish our preparing. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bomb is ready. And we're ready to go. Okay. Ready, steady. go.
13: It's big, it's loud, and it's heading straight to the Russian position. We need to hide. Out here, the hunters quickly become the hunted. So for the Russians, the drone crews are also a high-value target, so obviously the Russians want nothing more than to kill these guys. Unfazed by the shelling around us, the pilot flies straight to the target and releases the bomb. This moment we call from Ukraine with love. So, you just dropped the bomb? Yep. This is what the blast looks like from the drone's camera. Pitch black, the strike fully automated. It's not until daytime that a reconnaissance flight proves they've hit and destroyed the target. Not clear how many Russians were killed and wounded here. This will allow the defense forces of Ukraine to move forward and continue the offensive, he says, with minimal losses, will inflict maximum losses on the enemy for the victory of Ukraine but it's not over as the uav flies back intercepted text messages show the russians have heard the drone and are targeting it enemy bird spotted a russian text understood another answers they launch flares to spot the drone
14: uh, now you can see
13: oh yeah it's back there the yeah.
14: lustra, called lustra
13: hmm. are they shooting those up to see the drone or why
14: they cannot see the drone but they shoot the
13: Finally, the drone makes it back. They need to get out of here fast. Will we follow you?
5: Yeah, let's okay. go follow me.
13: After what they say was a successful mission, the drone warriors leave exactly the way they came. And you know, Erica, those uh, units, they operate in a really stealthy way, and they are obviously, most of the time, very successful. But of course, they're also extremely vulnerable when they are on the ground there, if the Russians discover them, and and for instance, shoot artillery at them. And I asked these guys whether or not they had ever been discovered, and they said, yeah, it does happen quite frequently. They said that they've had people wounded, but have never had anybody killed. Of course, they want that to stay that way, but they also say they're not going to back down and try to make this offensive a success, Erica.
1: It is is remarkable access and insight into what is happening there in Ukraine. Fred, really appreciate it. Thank you. New data shows something that many of you may know firsthand. Families really struggling to meet the skyrocketing cost of childcare. That's, of course, if you can find childcare. We'll take a look at where parents are being forced to pay the most. Plus, I cannot believe I'm saying this, but
0: someone <laughs> official is saying that Beyonce is at fault for inflation in Sweden. Come on. One economist says, yeah. Why he's now blaming her for setting prices soaring. So this morning, a new report underscoring underscoring something Erica and I know very well, just how expensive childcare is in America. But listen to these numbers from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. The average cost per year for a single toddler is $10,600. The report found people in Washington, D.C., Massachusetts, Connecticut paying the most for child care centers in D.C. an average of more than $24,000 for one child for one year. Mississippi, Arkansas, Kentucky, the least expensive. But all things are relative. Mississippi's average cost just under $4,000. $4,400, I should say. Our chief business correspondent, Christine Romans, is here.
15: Cute but expensive. (laughs) <laughs> super expensive and again Kids. if you can find it um look in 34 states and dc it costs more to send your kid to daycare for child care than it does to send them for in-state public college tuition let wow. I me mean, just think about that a it, lot more the cost of college is more <laughs> more affordable than child care uh, one of the problems here is just inflation in this sector, 220%, the sector 220 percent prices have risen since 1990 so it is for many families the largest expense they have and it's Part of the problem here is the workforce behind the workforce. It's a low-paid workforce, and we've lost a lot of these jobs. I mean, this report says that the child care system in America was broken before COVID, Mm -hmm. and then COVID made it worse. We are down 50,000 child care jobs uh, since the pandemic. And look at the pay. To work in this sector, you have to have um, licensing in some cases. You have to have their requirements. The pay is about $13 an hour. You can make more in a restaurant. Um, on the floor of a big box store, and basically, it's half of what um, what is the typical uh, pay of all other uh, of all other categories. So it's just a real problem in this country right now, and it's a big burden for a
1: lot of families. Yeah, it certainly is. We also want to get your take on this next one, which is the talker of is the morning our favorite here at CNN this morning. morning. Um, Beyonce is being blamed by an official in Sweden. For jacking up inflation in that country, is he just ticked off because he couldn't get a ticket
15: or what's (laughs) going on here? He's actually
1: not ticked off. He's more gobsmacked (laughs) uh, that
15: Beyonce could move the economic needle of a country. Look, she had two sold-out shows in Stockholm and they'd seen Swedish inflation had been declining and it suddenly didn't. And then they realized, this economist realized, oh wait, it's the Beyonce effect. Uh, All these people came from all over the world, filled into these hotels, drove up all these prices. And so there was this blip, Inflation wasn't falling for a hot minute because Beyonce came to town. There is no one else in the world who could move the economic needle like Beyonce, no. and I think it's it's not like he's not really blaming her. It's more like wow. wow. And he was asked by CNN, "Well, Bruce Springsteen's coming. Is is he gonna is he gonna hurt inflation? No, Beyonce oh, is just a goodness. special category all her own. That's why she's the queen. <laughs>
10: Isn't
1: that, that is cool? Why she's the yeah. queen.
15: That's so cool. you could expect Swedish inflation to continue to decline once Beyonce leaves town. Okay, good. <laughs> no, phew. <laughs> Thanks, Christine.
0: Also, the Secretary of State Antony Blinken heading to Beijing today on a mission to try to reset U.S. relations with China. What do you expect from that? Plus this.
13: Parade. parade? Thursday. No. I need to go home. A- <laughs> well, he
1: needed to go home, but then... He decided he needed to stay. NBA Finals MVP said he wasn't going to the Denver Nuggets Championship Parade until he actually did. So why did he change his mind? You'll just have to stay with us to find out. Look at this kid. It's my favorite picture of him with his little This morning, Secretary Antony Blinken is embarking on a high-stakes trip to Beijing. The State Department says he'll be meeting with senior Chinese officials to discuss a variety of issues, all of them aimed at easing tensions between the U.S. and China. Now, Blinken had originally, of course, planned to visit China in February. That trip was postponed after the suspected Chinese spy balloon flew over the U.S. Blinken will be the first Secretary of State to visit China
0: since 2018, the first Biden cabinet official to travel to the country. Joining us now is global affairs analyst Jonathan Wachtel. He's the former director of communications and spokesperson for the U.S. mission to the United Nations under then ambassador Nikki Haley. It's great to have you, good morning. Hi, good morning. Uh, it's been clear from the administration that they want to lower the temperature, that they need to open those lines of communication, especially uh, with Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary's counterpart in China. Those really haven't been open since the whole spy balloon fiasco. What can Blink, before we get to the criticism, what can Blinken accomplish there?
16: What Blinken can accomplish there is say that the United States is a very powerful country and we take what's happening uh, with China very seriously and we're not going to tolerate it, that we're here to have dialogue, that we're here to have conversations and try to bring the temperature down a bit. But don't be under any false illusion that I'm coming out here, you know, Blinken coming out here to kiss someone's ring. I'm coming out here to have dialogue and to try to you know, underscore the seriousness of what's been going on and try to figure out a way forward for our two countries, because we have aspirations that are in conflict with one another and it's no good.
1: So if he comes out strong, if those are the words that we hear from Secretary Blinken, that would be a a success potentially of this visit in your mind. But there is sharp criticism about this visit to begin with uh, and concerns over whether he should be going at all. Should this be a trip for Secretary Blinken? Or should it be a lower-level official at this point because of the tensions?
16: Well, we had a lower-level visit just recently. We had the CIA de- director over there right. talking and trying to figure out things, trying to, to, to cool the temperature a bit. But, yeah, you're absolutely right, Erica. It's, it's a strange time. I mean, you know, one of the problems that, that we have in, in the United States is a short-term memory about things. The balloon uh, craziness that happened, that was just February. Do you just brush that aside and pretend like nothing happened? There was a balloon flying over our country, snooping on us in a a very egregious way. Do you forget that? Uh, So I think some of the criticism of of the secretary going over there is is really warranted. Uh, And and there's a lot of concern that if he goes over there and, and pretends as if there's no big issue here and doesn't speak to some of the core issues that we're upset about, there's a problem. He needs to be very measured in how he handles himself over there. Uh, and, and we'll be watching to see what happens. If he, if he does manage to meet Xi, that's a big deal, uh, because that's China really trying to change things up a bit. Uh, so let's see if that happens as well.
0: But you know who Xi Jinping is meeting with? It's a bunch of powerful American CEOs. Right now, um, Jamie Dimon was just there meeting with him, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, the new CEO of Starbucks, sort of showing how important um, China is in terms of markets. But they and Blinken face not just the balloon issue, the threats against Taiwan, the support of Russia, the continuing human rights abuses in Xinjiang province. That is quite a tightrope to walk.
16: It's a very tightrope to walk. And, you know, Poppy, them meeting she says a lot, follow the money. You know, China's growth and ascendancy in the world is based on manufacturing and all the economic power that they've been able to gain as a result of their relationship with these corporations and businesses.
0: Do you think, though, just to put the other side out there, it, it is more than just follow the money? For sure, it's important for their bottom lines. But what I've heard from these CEOs often is why punish the people of China, the workers in China that are part of our growing companies, when these aren't their policies, per se. They're the government's policies. Do you see a distinction?
16: Yes, I do. Of course. You, don't, you know, the Chinese people are people, just like we're people. I mean, why, why would you want to punish people? It's crazy. But, you know, when you have piracy going on, when you have unfair trade practices going on, when you have currency manipulation going on, it's not the people, but it's policies. And, and you, have to, you have to curb that stuff somehow. So steps have to be taken in some regard uh, to work something out. And, and, of course, mindful that you don't want to hurt the, the, the Chinese people. Who wants to hurt the Chinese people?
1: Yeah, there's a lot, a lot yeah. to look for in this. i yeah, will be interested s- to talk yeah. to you on the other side of the visit, actually. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if he does uh, meet with President Xi. Thank you, Jonathan.
16: OK, pleasure.
1: Coming up here.
17: Tornado just went in town.
9: Tornado, tornado
1: just went through town. We are following that news out of Texas, where, as you just heard there, a devastating tornado went through town. Three people are dead, uh, dozens more injured. We're going to be live on the ground there for you in Perryton as the sun is coming up. Stay with us. More
0: CNN this morning to come after the break. Thousands of fans lined the streets in Denver to celebrate the Nuggets' first NBA championship. Check out MVP Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray riding in a SWAT vehicle. The rest of the team made it to City Hall on fire trucks. Jokic had this to say after the big win, though.
13: When is parade. When is parade. Thursday. No. <laughs> I need to go home. <laughs> <laughs>
1: He needed to go home, but then he maybe delayed that a little bit, a little change of heart. And now he says he is glad he stuck around for the championship parade.
2: You know that I, I told that uh, I don't want to stay on parade, but I f-ing want to stay on parade. This is the that I have f-ing, f-ing life. Yeah, this is, this is amazing. This is, uh, we all going to remember this, uh, our whole lives. and. Uh,
18: And when we see you guys that uh, came out on the streets and uh, actually this one is for you. We love you, Denver. This one is for you.
1: Yeah, definitely don't want to miss that moment. The Nuggets will get their championship rings in October. Love that. CNN This Morning continues
19: right now. devastating tornado ripping through northern texas damage in the panhandle
7: is extensive
4: the problem was this time the storm developed very rapidly
7: head injuries collapsed lungs broken legs major lacerations
4: our community could use all of the prayers that can be sent to us right now
20: a judge some feared might slow walk the Trump case, kickstarts it instead.
1: It comes just two days after the arraignment, and she's setting a pretty tight timeline.
11: This will be the case of a lifetime, and it'll be hard to find people who don't have an opinion.
20: A federal grand jury has indicted that Air National Guardsman. Six counts of willful retention and transmission of classified information. Bringing this case to trial could be embarrassing
21: to the Department of Defense.
7: The Justice Department has informed the PGA Tour it is going to investigate that surprise merger.
16: A DOJ investigation could stop the merger and say this is going to violate antitrust laws. Take the competitor off the board, exist as a partner. I don't think this is going to end anytime soon.
19: They're called Grandfluencers, pulling in huge brand deals. I want to highlight, it's okay to get older. I'm not afraid to be myself.
22: I think young people are craving authenticity, and that's what I try to encourage. Is
19: being older actually an asset on social media?
22: Totally, not only on social media, but in life, life itself.
0: Good morning, everyone, I cannot wait for that.
22: Older people
0: taking full advantage of Instagram. That is something to highlight ahead, but we do begin
1: with very tragic news Mm -hmm. from overnight. That's right, we've been following very closely what's left after this devastating tornado made its way through Perryton, Texas. Sorry. see that massive cloud there. Well, folks in the area uh, telling CNN they had a little warning before the tornado began ripping through the town of about 8,000 overnight. Here's what we know at this hour. Three people have been confirmed dead, as many as 100 more injured. And those injuries range from cuts and bruises to far more severe injuries, even a head injury. Uh, The tornado left about 200 homes destroyed. As you can see from this picture here, uh, some buildings just Absolutely leveled, down communications towers. One man saying he is simply thankful that he and his family are alive.
14: I'm just happy my brothers are alive. I mean, I know all the property and everything, accessories can be replaced, but alive life can never be replaced. And just being in the tornado, thinking about it like my brother worrying, crying. It would have killed me. It would have hurt me inside. I, I just, I don't know what I would have done.
0: This is just one of several reported tornadoes across the country. Look at dash cam video here. This is from Toledo, Ohio. You can see strong winds sending debris everywhere as drivers waited for the storm to pass. Right now, nearly 400,000 customers in Texas, Florida, Oklahoma and Alabama are without power. Let's get to our colleague Lucy Kafanoff. She is live this morning in Perryton, Texas with more we, the sun is up, you can see the devastation, but what is the human toll?
2: The human toll is still unfortunately being counted. As daylight breaks, you can see more of the scale of the destruction here in Perryton. Homes were completely flattened structures like the one you see behind me turned to rubble. At least three people lost their lives. Dozens injured, hundreds now left without their homes. A deadly tornado touching down in the Texas panhandle, leaving a brutal path of destruction in Perryton.
3: tornado is just uh, 100 yards or so right there.
2: Large hail pelted down as the tornado moved through the area. And soon after, a possible second, smaller tornado was seen as well. One storm chaser says there was very little warning ahead of this tornado as the funnel cloud formed very quickly.
4: Whenever I was flying around, uh, it looked like people were just having to self-rescue themselves. People were were climbing out of rubble. Um, you know, there was a the fire nearby.
2: As many as 200 homes were destroyed, according to the town's fire chief. And some of those homes were completely leveled, as seen in this aerial video shot in the tornado's aftermath.
5: This whole area is just wild.
2: One nearby resident drove through Perryton in the tornado's wake and documented the damages.
14: There's
5: tanks, oil field tanks. That right there
6: is a a trailer, an oil field trailer. Texas Governor Greg
2: Abbott deploying the state's emergency response resources. The surrounding cities and counties also rushed to the area to provide aid. In neighboring Hansford County, the county judge says they are preparing to assist for a possible mass casualty and/or recovery event. The Red Cross is mobilizing teams to offer support on the ground. The local high school is opening its doors to offer shelter to those in need.
4: Uh, I think that there's a, a sense of fear just of the unknown. I don't. I don't think anybody really has any idea what's going to happen next. Um, the the shock is still sitting is sitting in the the sadness, the anger, the gr- every every emotion that people can be going through, they're going through.
2: The Interim County Hospital CEO says it's operating off generators, which can only last for a little over 72 hours. She says the hospital has treated somewhere between 75 and 100 people with injuries,
7: anything from minor lacerations to major traumas, head injuries, uh collapsed lungs, Broken legs, major lacerations, um, a little bit of everything. And people
2: here are still coming to grips with what happened. It happened so quickly. There was really no time to get to a shelter, even though there is. A shelter just a block and a half from here. Folks who live in the buildings behind me said they simply didn't have time to get away. And this is just the beginning of the difficult battle they have ahead of them. The power is still out, uh, food, water, just about everything you can think of folks here need right now.
0: Lucy, we're glad you're on the ground bringing us their stories,
1: but it is tragic. Thank you for that. Uh, There's new reporting this morning in the federal case against Donald Trump. His attorneys have contacted the Justice Department of getting necessary security clearances in this classified documents case. That's according to a source familiar with the matter. And it also underscores the sensitive nature of the documents the former president is accused of withholding. Uh, This is part of Judge Eileen Cannon's first order here, uh, since, of course, the president, uh, the former president, had that not guilty plea entered earlier this week pleading not guilty to charges of mishandling classified information and to obstruction of justice. So by June 20th, Judge Cannon said she wants the lawyers to file a notice confirming they have complied with her instructions. Uh, We are still waiting to learn whether the trial will take place before or after, of course, the 2024 election. Um, But look, there is a busy calendar already here for Donald Trump. As you can see, a lot going on there.
0: Let's bring in our... Experts on all of this, former prosecutor Jeremy Saland, Times senior correspondent and host of Times Person of the Week podcast, Charlotte Alter, and New York Times national political correspondent, Shane Goldmark. Good morning, guys. Thanks so much for being here. Shane, let me start with you. You say, look, Florida courts tend to move fast. This is a sign of that. Is it also a sign of what's to come, that this whole thing goes fast?
3: I mean, it's potentially a sign of that. Look, this could be a slow process. Getting security clearances takes time. And by the way, Trump doesn't even have a full legal team yet, right? He just parted ways with two of his top lawyers. So he has to bring in new lawyers, pick his lawyers, and then they have to get security clearances. But the special counsel said he wants to have a speedy process here. And there's a real big deadline, which is the 2024 election. Can you do this before that election? Because if you wait until after, there's a whole new Pandora's box of
23: possibilities.
1: Jeremy, what's your sense? Can this trial happen before the election?
23: Can is a relative term. Certainly, yes, it can. It's possible. It's possible. But, you know, with the security clearance, this is not going to be measured in in days or weeks. It's going to be measured in a much longer time than that, because the process is not just an attorney filling out a form and saying, where have you lived? Where have you gone to school? Debt? You know, arrest? Things like that. Once they're investigated, there's further steps that take it beyond that. So it takes a lot of time.
1: And can you is there a way to safely fast track that process if needed?
23: You can, relatively speaking, prioritize it. a judge, a district judge, can say this should sort of jump to the top and move things along, but the investigative process itself still takes time. You have to be thorough. These are documents that are really relevant to the United States uh, you know, defense and security.
0: Yeah, that's for sure. Also, the de- deference is given to the defendant's team to say we have enough time, we're ready, et cetera, et cetera, even if the special counsel wants to move it fast. It's not Absolutely. totally up to Jack Smith. What's your take?
24: I just think uh, the schedule here is getting really tricky for Donald Trump. I mean, Georgia prosecutors are set to announce whether they're going to charge him for his alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 election in late summer. That's right around the time of the RNC debate. Uh, His Stormy Daniels related trial is set for March of 2024. That's after Super Tuesday. There's a lot of tricky timing to balance here with his legal schedule and his political schedule. So this is not the only uh, this is not the only trial that he's facing. So uh, there's there's going to be a lot of balancing here.
1: Shane, you were in Bedminster on Tuesday night when the president was making his speech, doing some fundraising in reaction to what had happened, of course, in Florida earlier in the day. I was struck by your assessment of Donald Trump that night. Just walk us through what you saw at that event and and what was different about his demeanor.
3: Well, the pre-event was fascinating too, right? We were all uh, there for many hours before it began and the attendees started coming in and people were wearing these sort of almost like wedding attire, bright colored dresses. There were the high tops that they would use for a wedding at this golf club. And there was almost a celebratory atmosphere of like, this is a big moment for Trump and we're here to watch it. And then he arrived and people were excited, right? They're, they're craning their phones to get a picture of the motorcade. And when he spoke, he really didn't come with the sort of excited energy that he often has. He, he sounded and looked tired and, and deflated by the process, right? You know, this is a, a person who spent decades trying to avoid being indicted for crimes. He negotiated with regulators. He negotiated with investigators. And so here he is, not just being accused of crimes once but twice this year, and now this is a federal crime. So there's, there's a political issue. And yes, this is not hurting him in the Republican primary, but it doesn't mean it's something that he was looking forward to, mm-hmm. even as some of his political advisors see some upside for him in the short term.
1: Right, as he said, no one wants to be indicted. Right, sure. So. Yeah, I mean, I certainly don't. So I can, I think he's Never right. Most would.
0: people, <laughs> agree. <laughs> She's perfect. Uh, I don't know about but that. There <laughs> you are. There's something bigger here than, than whatever happens to Trump. It's, it's what happens to the institutions in our country, particularly given not just his attacks, but a growing number of Republican attacks, presidential candidate attacks on the independence of the Justice Department. This is something um, Ron DeSantis went at hard in his first interview when he announced, but I thought it was interesting, Shane, what um, John Thune said about this. Let's listen.
16: Obviously, we need accountability and we need oversight, which is the the job that we have to make sure they're doing their job the right way. But are we gonna get rid of the Justice Department? No, and um, I think defunding it's a really bad idea.
0: Increasingly on an island in his party or no?
16: He's in
3: the leadership of his party in the Congress, but he is not in the sort of mainstream of where Republican primary voters seem to be based on the comments of so many of other Trump's rivals. It's not just Trump. It's not just Ron DeSantis. a whole slew of them. have yeah. talked about weaponization. They've talked about and ending the Justice Department, as they see it, replacing the FBI director. Yeah. This is the new mainstream of the Republican Party, even if Thune is one of the top-ranking senators look, on Capitol Hill. You
0: know, above the fold, mm-hmm. top piece um, by your colleagues in The Times today. You know, sort of bigger picture. We need to think about this.
1: Yeah, what it means. Yeah, And what what does it mean, bigger picture? Because when you have, right, an effort as well to delegitimize some of these institutions and to call into question whatever charges may be filed and to immediately label something as being political because maybe it's going after someone who you support politically. How do you fight back against that?
23: You know, it's it's interesting the anti-weaponizers, if that's the proper term, are trying to weaponize what they're saying is being weaponized. It's it's. It's really ironic. It's, it's <clears throat> pathetic, actually. And it really, I think, does a grave injustice to people in the United States, to anybody who cares about law and order, just as well. Even if you believe that Donald Trump did nothing wrong with, in terms of his, the subpoenas, he, his response or lack of response and avoiding the process and ignoring that legal process, that is what he did wrong. Even if you think nothing was, you know, it, was, it wasn't confidential, it was all right. acceptable to have those materials. He just, just ignored that process, and that's not okay. Um,
0: It was interesting to hear yesterday morning, um, Francis Suarez, mayor of Miami, who's just jumped into this race, who I should note is a lawyer himself, a practicing lawyer, went after this indictment in his interview with George Stephanopoulos, didn't name exactly what he took issue with, but he called it political. It just seems to be like that is the line you have to toe to run in this Republican primary.
24: Yeah, I thought that the Suarez announcement was interesting because he definitely is towing that line. But it's also interesting to look at his speech last night, which uh, seemed to be trying to almost also step away from that line as well. I mean, he was trying to position himself as this next generation leader, a young mayor who's sort of like outside of the political and cultural and social national trends and can really focus on getting people jobs and making our cities work. Um, It reminded me a little bit almost of the way Pete Buttigieg tried to position himself in the 2020 campaign. Um, So it, it was interesting to watch him kind of toe the line between what Republican primary voters expect from their candidates and the message he's trying to send about turning a page for the GOP. it
1: be interesting to see all that messaging and that balancing act, too, moving forward. Uh, Shane, Charlotte, Jeremy, great to have all of you with us. Thank you. Just ahead here, the PGA Tour under fire for that surprise partnership with Saudi-funded Live Golf. Now, a new report says the Justice Department is launching an investigation. So what could this mean for that deal moving forward? We're gonna dig in. More CNN This Morning
0: to come after the break. Quite a development in the surprising partnership between the PGA Tour and the Saudi Public Investment Fund, which is backing Live Golf. The Wall Street Journal this morning reporting the Justice Department will investigate this proposed merger. There are antitrust concerns there, the journal says. This deal was announced last week. It would unite the commercial businesses of the PGA Tour, Europe-based DP World Tour, and Saudi-backed Live Golf under a new and still unnamed for-profit company. In a statement Thursday to CNN, the PGA Tour said, quote, we're confident that once all stakeholders learn more about how the PJ Tour will lead this new venture, they will understand how it benefits our players, our fans and sport while protecting the American Golf Institution. Joining us now to talk about all of this is Christine Brennan. I'm totally fascinated by this for many, many reasons. Not only the fact that this proposed merger is even happening,
6: but with DOJ sniffing around, does this thing even get done? That's a great question. I mean, at this point... The idea that this was a done deal, which everyone thought a week ago... I, I think that is very much up in the air. It certainly ensures that there will be chaos in men's golf for the next year, at least. That's what experts are, are telling me. And that's exactly what the game of golf does not need at this time. Um, obviously there was antitrust. There was DOJ antitrust concerns prior to this merger. But when you've got the commissioner of the PGA tour now on leave, um, when you've got him saying we've taken a competitor off the board, and had them now be, uh, join us. That, of course, raises everyone's concern. And so, no surprise at all, frankly, to me, that DOJ is investigating. It will take a while, and it continues to hurt the game of golf, men's golf, that PR side of it, where people look at it and say, why am I watching this? It just seems to be all about greed. It seems to be all about controversy. And it's really a tough time for the, the game of men's golf. As I said, though, and as we've said over the last few weeks, uh, it is all self-induced. Uh, this is all about these guys wanting more, more, more. Uh, and we will see, of course, how it plays out. So self-induced sort of was to be expected.
1: Is, the, is there a world, is there a universe in which this actually gives the PGA some cover that the the DOJ is digging around?
6: Certainly in the sense of if they say at the end of the day, probably they say, oh, it's okay and everything's fine, um, then yes, it would. And the PGA Tour, to be fair to them, was in a real jam because Mm -hmm. they're going up against um, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi Investment Fund, and billions and billions of dollars. And the PGA Tour just didn't have that. But the uh, the Saudis have bought their way into an American sport. And, of course, we know with the Saudis, uh we have to say this comes terrible baggage mm-hmm. they deny a lot of this but of course uh 15 of the 19 hijackers in 911 were saudi yeah. of course the murder and dismemberment of jamal Khashoggi. uh and the fact of just the um the human rights abuses the lgbtq abuses a sport like golf that is trying to attract women and trying to attract new people not just an old old you know grandpa and and grandma well guess what that sport is now in business with someone who repels or a group of people that could certainly repel your future uh, fan base and your future growth industry. And that is a huge problem for golf moving forward.
0: For sure. Right. Um, The issue of sports washing also has come up by some really prominent senators, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Ron Wyden, two Democrats sent a letter earlier this week to the Justice Department calling for their antitrust division to take a look. Uh, We don't know I mean, it sounds like this was launched before they sent that letter, but they sent it. And in part, it said uh, the deal, quote, enables the Saudi government's efforts to sports wash its egregious human rights record that you just went through. But that, interestingly, is not what DOJ would probe.
6: No, DOJ would be looking at the antitrust implications. But in this case, there is also that public relations side, and we sure. know, you know, Poppy and Erica for covering uh, you know politics so long. You've got Senator Wyden, who has been on this for a year. He, I interviewed him a year ago about this. He has been concerned and and very, uh, very criti- You know, has been critical of um, Live Golf. You've got Senator Blumenthal, Senator Warren. I imagine others would come in as well. Um, it is something that they want to look at, as you mentioned, of course, that the issue of human rights abuses. And as Senator Wyden said last week, you're allowing the Saudis to potentially take over American real estate. Now, they're not buying the golf courses, but they they will have business going on on American property. Mm-hmm. So that is part of it, too. But yes, they are separate things. And what, what what it means for the golf fan or the casual fan sports fan someone who just is kind of looking at this thing what's going on is that it will be nothing but chaos and confusion for the next year at least yeah. and that is exactly what any sport does not want right now so, right. certainly the game of golf especially as tiger woods uh is you know near the end of his career so those tv ratings that tiger had which were stratospheric yeah. those days are long gone for golf another problem for the game of men's golf
1: christine brennan always appreciate your insight great to see you this morning thank you
6: great to see you both thank you
1: russian cyber criminals have reportedly targeted several u.s government agencies what we know about that hack and how washington plans to respond that's just ahead also i hope my son is up watching there's a new
0: dinosaur (laughs) a new dinosaur species has just been discovered off the coast of england what researchers are saying this morning name that tune this is jurassic park right come on is it yes A federal grand jury has formally indicted the man accused of leaking all of those classified Pentagon documents. The Justice Department says 21-year-old airman Jack Teixeira is facing six counts of willful retention and transmission of national defense information. The Massachusetts native has not entered a formal plea yet and remains in federal custody. He was arrested in April under the Espionage Act. He allegedly took secret files from Otis Air National Guard base and posted them on Discord, that social media
1: site. Erica. Well, U.S. officials are now saying Russian-speaking hackers are likely the conspirators behind a global cyber attack that hit several U.S. government agencies. Beyond that, officials are saying, quote, several hundred companies and organizations in the U.S. could also be affected by the hacking spree. Joining us now, Florida Congressman Mike Waltz, who also, of course, sits on Foreign Affairs, Armed Services, and the Intelligence Committees. He's also endorsed former President Donald Trump in his 2024 bid. It's nice to have you here with us in the studio. Yeah,
17: thanks. Good to be with you in person.
1: Um, So let's talk about, first of all, this cyber hack that we learned about. Yeah. You're on Intel. Have you been briefed? What's your level of concern this morning?
17: Haven't been briefed on this specifically, uh, but we have been briefed on the explosion, the tsunami of ransomware attacks that are coming. Uh, And these are criminal actors all over the world. Uh, But what's most concerning are the ones that appear to be and often are state backed, particularly Russia Mm -hmm. and particularly China. Uh, what concerns me so much, you know, by the reporting, this appears to be Russian, uh, Russian hackers. What has me even more concerned about the Chinese hackers is that according to their law, if you're a software company like Microsoft in China, you have to hand over the government, your source code. Mm -hmm. You have to hand over the Chinese government when you find vulnerabilities in order to be able to do Business there. So you can imagine someone like Windows handing, uh, you know, or Microsoft handing over the source code to Windows because they want to continue to make money in in China and how that now is affecting our government agencies and our businesses. Do you believe
1: believe that's a direct line that the Chinese government is using that source code to then go around and go after U.S. government agencies potentially or businesses?
17: Look, I I can't imagine that they're not. Uh, And we know uh, that the Chinese Communist Party is using. And to, to an extent, the Russians as well are using these hackers as an extension of the state and to conduct economic warfare on our businesses. One, to put them on their back foot, two, to penetrate our agencies, but often to give their businesses a competitive advantage in the global marketplace.
1: So real quickly, because we got a lot of topics to get through this yeah. morning, <laughs> we were joking in the break, it's a lightning round. Yeah. Is the U.S. doing enough, based on what you know, to prepare for these attacks? Because... Maybe not, based on what we just saw. So,
17: well, what has me concerned about this particular attack is that major agencies, sensitive agencies, like our research labs, like the Department of Energy and others, appear to have been hacked. Mm -hmm. We should have a very different standard for those sensitive agencies with government funding than obviously a small mom and pop Mm -hmm. uh, that is just kind of trying to make payroll. And and that's where the disparity is in that public-private sector that we're always trying to bridge and have a lot of work to do. But, gosh, on the government side, they should be secure.
1: All right. So we'll, we'll continue to keep an eye on that. Meantime, let's talk about the indictment sure. that was unsealed last week. Per the indictment, the classified documents that the former president allegedly had include information about military capabilities, both U.S. and mm-hmm. foreign. US nuclear pro- The U.S. nuclear program, possible vulnerabilities for the U.S. and allies when it comes to military attacks, plans of a possible attack against a foreign nation. This is information that the indictment laid out puts national security at risk. It puts the military at risk. Given how the former president is alleged to have handled these documents and this information, you endorsed him, as I noted, mm-hmm. in April yep. in his reelection bid here. Does any of this give you pause about the way that information was allegedly handled by
17: Yeah, so a couple of things, and this is all obviously going to play out. One, you mentioned the word alleged. So this is the prosecution side of what happened. And obviously, the president will mount his defense and give the other side of the story, context, what have you. Two, uh, I think we're going to see a very difficult and complex and convoluted legal case here because you have conflicting statutes. Uh, in the Presidential Records Act and in the Espionage Act. So the, uh, but the Presidential
1: and, and Records Act, right? Is six.
17: a newer and more specific law that many legal analysts say will trump, uh, pardon the pun, the Espionage Act. And when you have to prove intent, uh, both on the front end and on the retention end, through the Espionage Act, if that's what they indeed stick with, then if the president believed and legal precedent holds, for example, in the Clinton Uh, in the Clinton tapes, that the Presidential Records Act was the governing statute. I think that's going to be an incredibly difficult case to make. And then finally, a lot of the evidence rests on piercing the attorney-client privilege, which is very rare, unprecedented, hasn't been, certainly hasn't been done before with a former president and sitting political candidate. Uh, And if the judge decides that's not admissible, that could be a very significant development.
1: So that's as enough we, as we watch for that. But when we look at where things stand, the Presidential Records Act, right? The Presidential record Act's, rec- Records Act yeah. says that those records belong to the public, right? I think there's a lot of confusion over documents, how they're classified, how they're, when they can be declassified, sure. who they belong to, right. who's in charge of them when it comes to the national records. So a lot of that has been established as we're looking at this. What about when it comes to obstruction?
17: But, but you're, actually, you're actually making my point. There's a lot of confusion of what belongs to the president, what belongs to the public, and the let me finish the National Archives just testified before the Intelligence Committee and we've released this testimony. There have been 80 instances going back to Reagan uh, in every administration where there have been a back and forth, there has been confusion, there has mm-hmm. been uh, including 80 congressional and senatorial offices, 80, not eight, not two. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so th- I think there's a broader systemic problem here in terms of the management of classified documents and what belongs to who uh, that we'll be taking a, a hard look at at Congress. But I don't think that's out there than how often this is happening. So
1: so to your point, right, there, there were conversations. There were conversations with a former president to return some of those documents. I mean, you're citing that this happens a lot. People yeah. take documents, whether on purpose or inadvertently. Most of the time, it, it appears to be inadvertent. Yeah. And then there's a conversation and it's Give them back. The Washington Post just reporting this week that, in fact, uh, I believe it was uh, Kais who said there was reporting that he talked to the president about, hey, you know what? Why don't we go talk to DOJ, tell the former president, saying you took these by accident, you can return them. We can avoid all of this here. Multiple times the archives tried to get that information, those records back. The president didn't just hand them over. Why not just hand them over if, to your point, this happens a lot?
17: Yeah, well, look, Under if, if he believed he was privileged under the, the Presidential Records Act, then that is a conversation that I would argue should have continued to happen because what's missing also in this conversation, and I could tell you this talking to Floridians and, and folks back home, uh, you can call it whataboutism about, what or what have you. They're calling it fairness. Uh, and there's legal precedent here when you have the Clinton tapes When you have the Clinton emails, when you have the fact that the sitting national security advisor right now, Jake Sullivan, was uh, sending and laundering classified documents into an unclassified server on top of the fact that the sitting president of the United States admitted he had documents in his garage that you're going in and out of. People look at that and say, whoa, wait a minute. There was prosecutorial discretion there. They didn't prosecute. They didn't go after these folks in all of these other instances. But in the one, you go after President Trump. And I can tell you, I've served in places Mm -hmm. where this in the third world all over the country where the party in power uses the power of the state to go after political opponents. And yet we're seeing that now. I never thought I'd see that this in the United States. And I think the damage that's being done to people's trust On top of the years of Russia, on top of the Russia, 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 on top of the Durham report uh, that shows, and the FBI director said was abhorrent, was unacceptable, and all of those folks have since been fired. Now we're telling people, trust us when it comes to Trump this time. Uh, people aren't buying it. And I think that's why you're seeing his poll numbers actually go up.
1: So let's unpack some of this because there is some confusion, right, in the sure. way that you're laying things out. These are not all apples to apples. We're basically out of time, but it's important to note President Biden, the special, inv- the special counsel is still investigating President Biden in terms of the documents that right. were found there, They've right? also so been investigating not, on, Hunter for right. four years. So that's not, yes, and there are questions about that from it, both right? sides of the aisle. I mean, but that, so the, so President Biden is still being investigated, right? Vice President Biden. And we'll see how long cleared. that goes. You talk about these tapes. It's that amazing was... that
17: this one went in just a few months and the Hunter Biden investigation and now the Joe Biden investigation. Right? So those can seem all seem to be moving. Questions.
1: But you're throwing a bunch of things into a basket that are not all the same. And I do think it's important for our viewers to understand the differences there. I hope and you guys specifically,
17: unpack those.
1: We're gonna have to we we will we have multiple <laughs> I hope times. You we have multiple them. fact checks on the website as well. I'm told <laughs> right. we're out of time. Really do appreciate you coming into the studio. I hope to see you in here again. Thanks, Congressman. Thank you, Poppy. A deputy's body camera capturing
0: a miracle on the side of the road.
17: All right, look at me. Look at me.
9: Breathe through. All right, Mama. Breathe through. Okay. You had your water broke.
11: Yes. There you go, Mama. I told you I didn't want to deliver
0: a baby, another baby. Oh, there's your little oh, miracle little for this girl. morning. Hear from that mother and the deputy who helped deliver her child. Oh,
17: yes, yeah, that's a beautiful sound. That's a beautiful sound, mama.
1: A sheriff's deputy in Florida going beyond the call of duty, delivering a baby on the side of the highway, but it doesn't end there. The family he helped is now honoring that officer in a very special way. CNN's
25: Isabel Rosales has their story.
18: How far long are you pregnant?
25: In answering the call of duty, law enforcement officers face life and okay, death fine. emergencies.
9: Just keep breathing, okay? I'm not going to move you. I'm not going to do nothing because you feel like you look like you're comfortable right now.
25: On April 30th, one Florida deputy braved those high-stakes extremes on a single shift.
4: Whether it's catching a baby or stopping a bad guy is what we get paid to do.
25: Adrenaline pumping and his weapon drawn, Deputy Red Jones, a 22 year veteran of the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office, was responding to a road rage call.
4: I had that one guy at gunpoint to get him out of his vehicle until we got that situation taken care of. But moments later, I seen a black little SUV pull up behind my truck and the driver got out. You can see the panic in his face. So I started making my way towards him. He had met me about halfway across and he's like, you need to escort me to the hospital i told him i said well, we don't do that that's only in the movies he said well, my wife's having a baby i just got out of the
9: car and ice cream um can i get help
25: the expectant mother maxella was in labor I pushing. agony He rushed to the hospital
11: but the baby was coming too fast i knew we were not going to make it nowhere near to brandon or Neither of the hospital around us. <laughs>
9: yeah, not even plants
20: either. Yeah,
11: ain't. we weren't even going to make it to neither of them because I already felt her pushing down.
9: She's ready to go. Okay, all right, look at me, look at me. Breathe through, all right, Mama? Breathe through, okay? You had your water broke? Yes. You had to let me know if the baby's coming, okay?
25: And right there, on the side of Florida Highway 60, Deputy Jones helped welcome Lexella Luis Lopez. She's coming,
20: she's coming, she's coming. i going to have to take her to the back. There we go. I got a baby. Don't pull.
17: Don't pull. I got her. I, I, okay. There
11: you go, mama.
25: Four pounds, 11 ounces, and 18 inches. She's the couple's first child together.
4: There ain't no training for us for birthing babies.
25: But if there were, Deputy Jones would make a fine instructor.
4: This is my third little one since I've had a, been here at the sheriff's office.
25: During a Mother's Day party at the sheriff's office, the four reconnected. We got a little basket. She's
11: wearing one of her onesies that he gave her. Says little red.
26: We call her little red,
3: and like I think we made a Instagram page. One more thing. Oh.
25: <laughs> and after all they've been through together, Luis and Lexella yeah. had one more favor yeah, to ask of, of Red. Since you deliver her, right? How do you feel being her godfather?
4: Very good. That'd make me very happy. So that'd be make me very happy. <laughs> thank you mama. an thank unlikely you.
25: bond between a deputy and a family that began on the side of a road now destined to last a lifetime isabel rosales cnn well that's just so a so great
1: day. i know and the third baby, baby on the side of the road for that officer. Yeah.
0: Wow. He was born to do this it, Clearly, yes. Also this, a brand new dinosaur species has been discovered. The fossilized remains were found on the Isle of Wight, an island off the coast of England. The Natural History Museum says this is the first armored dinosaur to be found on the island in 142
1: years. And that is so It is very cool. Uh, TikTok, of course, rose to prominence among Gen Z. Now, though, some of its older creators are really having a moment. And the brands are taking notice. Prepare to meet the Grandfluencers. And new this this morning,
0: Spotify and Archwell Audio have parted ways. That's a production company started by the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, Harry and Meghan. Spotify and the couple released a joint statement saying it was a mutual agreement. The Sussexes announced their exclusive Spotify partnership, you'll remember, in December of 2020. More CNN this morning to come after the break.
13: I am your
25: mother.
1: This no I kind of just want to keep watching it. Boomers and grannies taking TikTok by storm. They're not just making videos either; they are teaching. <laughs> As a mother, teaching younger users in some cases how to use the TikTok. CNN's Vanessa Yurkovich reports. TikTok. The TikTok. <laughs>
19: Six strangers picked to live in a house and have their lives taped for social media.
24: I got me so baby,
19: This isn't exactly the real world house. These six strangers are well into retirement age, but their TikTok, The Retirement House, is anything but. These seniors who are doing a bit of acting are pumping out curated content, rivaling influencers more than half their age, while amassing more than 5 million followers. They're called grandfluencers and are pulling in huge brand deals. The creator economy is worth $250 billion and could double to $480 billion by 2027. It looks good for me. The retirement house, promoting CeraVe. Four friends from Palm Springs, known as the old gaze on TikTok, and have 11 million followers, partnered with Hyundai. First Hyundai And Chabani took notice of 74-year-old Lynn Davis's cooking videos and her 15.7 million followers. That's good. 62-year-old Helen Polisi is approaching 1 million followers on TikTok. It's daunting to think about that many people because it's like populations of cities. Here we go. Polisi found TikTok over the pandemic, a distraction and a way to have fun. Was there a point that this turned into more of a business? Some people would ask me, oh, how did you do that transition? How did you figure that out? So I said, I'll make a tutorial for you. And that was the turning point in the social media for me. Instead of brand deals, she's teaching her followers how to TikTok through paid tutorials. It started with mostly older people, but now it's younger people, too. I'm really good at technology, probably better than a lot of young people. So I want to highlight that it's... It's okay to get older. I feel more authentic. I'm not afraid to be myself. And I think that's really helpful on social media especially. And for older influencers, success comes in the form of connection to millions of people, often a quarter of their age.
22: It also opens up a lot of community. I have more friends than I can count. And I have more friends who are like 25 and 30 than 75, 80-year-olds.
19: At 78, Debra Rappaport has found a new audience for her sustainable wearable art on Instagram. She's able to promote her upcoming shows, workshops and sell what she's made. And I've modeled
22: this naked.
19: To her nearly (laughs) 60,000 Instagram followers. Why do you think they're attracted to you?
22: I, I think young people are craving authenticity. And that's what I try to encourage.
19: Is being older actually an asset
22: on social media? Totally, totally. Not only on social media, but in life life itself. I'm not afraid at 78 to put myself out there and say, this is who I am. This is what I do. I've been doing it a very long time. I don't intend to stop.
19: For many yes, grandfluencers, always, this I is fun and doesn't feel like work. Even while we filmed with Polisi, she was capturing her very next TikTok. And I know it's going to be that was the entire CNN crew's first TikTok with Helen Felici there. We had so much fun. They had so much fun. But Helen Polisi actually took to TikTok to also share her story about cancer. Wow. She had cancer. She's cancer-free now. Thank goodness. But she says she doesn't know if she would have been able to get through it emotionally without the support of all of her wow. followers. She also said one of her followers came to her and said, I came to your platform to learn about TikTok, but instead I learned about life. Oh, it is boy. so nice to see this positivity yes. on social media when there's obviously such a big concern about men- mental health, yeah, especially yeah. with teens. Uh, we had so much fun. These baby boomers, grandparents, grandfluencers are great, and they have
1: millions of people, young so people cool. following well, I want to hang out with them, too. Um, it was such a great story. I can tell why you guys had so much fun. We did. to watch, too. Vanessa, Thank thanks. You Vanessa, Thank you, a Great guys. report. Thanks. Just ahead in our 8 o'clock hour, you will hear from the latest Republican to join the crowded race for the White House. Miami Mayor Francis Suarez will join us. We're also going to take you back to
0: Texas, where a tornado ripped through the town of Perryton. What we're learning as the sun comes up.
17: Tornado just went in town.
13: Tornado, Tornado just went through town.
14: I'm just happy my brothers are alive. I mean, I know all the property and everything, accessories can be replaced, but a life it can never be replaced. And just being in the tornado, thinking about it, like my brother worrying, crying, it would have killed me, it would have hurt me inside. I, I just, I don't know what I would have done.
0: Oh, good morning, everyone. That was a resident of Perryton, Texas, getting emotional. Talking about his brothers who survived the tornado that ripped through their small town. We're going to take you there live
1: as the sun comes up and reveals the extent of the devastation. We are also learning multiple U.S. federal agencies were hit in a cyber attack run by Russians. A top cybersecurity agency is now warning the government is not the only target. And three years after the murder of George Floyd, the
0: Justice Department is set to announce what they discovered after investigating the Minneapolis Police Department. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. that is where we begin this morning with tragedy. A devastating tornado touching down in Perryton, Texas, leaving widespread destruction in its wake. People there had very little time to get ready to protect themselves before this tornado started barreling through the small town of just over 8,000 people. Here's what we know this hour. Three people dead, possibly 100 more injured with some minor injuries, but some very extensive injuries and critical condition. hospitalized. The tornado left about 200 houses completely flattened, nearly leveled some buildings and also leveled
1: dozens of mobile homes. So this is just one of several tornadoes reported across the country. Take a look at this video. This is some dash cam video from Toledo, Ohio. You see those strong winds. You see the debris blowing there. Drivers waiting for that storm to pass. Right now, nearly 400,000 customers across Texas, Florida, Oklahoma, and Alabama are without power. And more than 50 million people remain under a severe storm threat today. Oh I want to get God. straight to CNN's Lucy Kafanoff. She is in Perryton, Texas with more now coming up and really folks are going to be able to assess uh, this damage and the destruction left behind Lucy.
2: And that's exactly what's happening. There was a curfew here overnight, but people are slowly starting to stream in downtown. That's Main Street behind me. It took a direct hit. A lot of the buildings are brick structures, so they're still standing, but the windows are gone. A lot of the power lines are down. And I want to point out this mangled red structure in the distance behind me. That is a cell tower. It was probably twice, three times the height when it was standing. It looks like a child's toy that was snapped in half. The power, uh, the town currently really struggling to have cell service. It's also struggling to have access to power. Excel turned off the electric lines because so many power lines are down. I wanna show uh, a view to our viewers down this alleyway there. I mean, you can see just how decimated a lot of the structures here are. The cleanup is going to take such a long time and of course, much more challenging for the people who live here is rebuilding the homes. A lot of the mobile homes in this area were completely destroyed, but the tornado hit so, pardon me, the uh, the tornado hit so quickly uh, that residents barely had time to get out to safety. Take a listen to Jamie James, one of the survivors. It started raining a little bit and it had a little bit of hail, like five or six little pellets of hail every thousand raindrops, it was just barely sprinkling and all of a sudden the tornado formed and it just dropped on us. It came out of nowhere and there was no sirens. Was there a moment where you feared you might not make it?
11: Yes, ma'am.
2: There was a
14: time where I thought that I was gonna die and I was gonna leave a lot of things undone. I know there's people here who died today. Serving our community. and so the best people I've ever met in my life are here in this town. Wonderful, wonderful people.
2: And Right now, the focus is on figuring out where everyone is, if people are safe. A lot of folks were injured, and also they need a lot of supplies. Water, power, food, blankets, almost anything you can think of they need right now.
0: Lucy, thank you very much for being on the ground, talking to them, bringing us the latest. Also in Florida, 150, 146 residents were removed from a Pensacola apartment complex this morning due to really severe flooding. The area is under a flash flood emergency. They saw as much as 16 inches of rain overnight, and officials
1: called the damage widespread and significant. CNN has learned the Department of Energy, along with several other federal agencies, fell victim to a global cyber attack. A top U.S. cybersecurity agency says Russian cyber criminals are to blame here. This breach, of course, is just the latest in an ongoing global hacking campaign, which CNN has learned has affected several hundred companies and organizations. That's according to a top security official, citing estimates from private experts.
0: In a statement, the U.S. Cybersecurity Infrastructure security agency tells CNN it's providing support to the affected agencies. They're working to understand the impacts and ensure timely remediation. Let's talk about all of this, how this happened, who did it, and what do we do now with CNN chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst John Miller. Good morning, and let's begin with that first question.
26: How severe? Well, the severity of these things generally depends on the sophistication of the victim at the other end of it, which is If you back up your data every day, you could lose a day's worth of data. If you back it up every hour, you could lose an hour, a minute, a minute. But lots of organizations in and out of the government just don't back up their data. The hackers come in, they find their target, they encrypt it, and they leave it there sitting in a lump that's now, you have to decode it. You can't get into it. You have to buy that key from them. So if you have your data backed up on another server, you can decide what to do with the hackers but you haven't lost everything.
1: So when we look at you, you say they have to decide whether or not they're going to buy that information back, right? That's if there's a request for a ransom. We know that private companies have paid ransoms in the past. When we're talking, though, about U.S. government agencies, that's typically not something that's going to happen. So do we have a sense of how, you know, sort of how severe and how broad this was for those agencies, potentially how damaging?
26: Well, so... The government is keeping their cards a little close to the vest on this about exactly what agencies and how many were hit and exactly what data was compromised. Uh, But presumably, because these are government systems, there are backups and it's not a systematic failure. It's interesting the way this occurs, because one way is to attack the system itself by getting in through a phishing email. The other way, which is becoming increasingly more common and much more sophisticated, is you find a tool that the system uses.
0: Move it, transfer in this In this, in this case, instance. move
26: it, transfer. You get into a vulnerability, a backdoor into that tool, and then once the tool is activated to do its job, whatever passes through it um, is fair game. And this is something where not every agency uses that, that tool, but some do. And you know this is kind of what they're grappling with. But the US government isn't going to pay a ransom. And it's interesting that the hackers said by the way, if you're the government yeah. or law enforcement, we're not interested in your information. So don't worry about it. You know, you don't we, we're not going to yeah, we're it's, not to don't worry. It.
1: We, we deleted it. We deleted it. Don't worry about it. Personally,
26: sure, I we. always put my trust in Russian hackers and um, their words. <laughs> yeah. Well-placed so trust. I wouldn't go. By, I wouldn't go by that. <laughs> wow.
0: John, appreciate it as always. Yeah, Thank thanks you very much. Well, Attorney General Merrick Garland will be in Minneapolis today. Where in just a few hours, he's expected to reveal the findings of a Justice Department investigation into the city's police department. This comes three years after former police officer Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd. Floyd's murder sparked nationwide protests and calls for police reform. Our Adrian Broaddus joins us live outside of the courthouse in Minneapolis. Adrian, this is really the culmination of what so many people who live there said has been a real problem for years, even before George Floyd was murdered. What do we expect?
11: You know, we expect to find or hear today from uh, the Department Department of Justice what their investigation found. I spoke with community leaders here in Minneapolis ahead of this announcement, and some of them told me whatever is in this report, they likely will not be surprised. It will just be an exclamation point or a period at the end of a sentence. That sentence is in regards to what they've been saying. They, meaning people who live here in Minneapolis, for years as you mentioned poppy before the killing of george floyd keep in mind this investigation was launched by the civil rights division of the department of justice and the goal was to examine the policies and practices with the minneapolis police department listening to what nakima levy armstrong told me she is the person who called the former chief of police maderia arredondo at the time george floyd was killed she's the woman who told the chief to look at the video because the chief initially was believing it was a medical incident. We all know that was not the case. Listen in. There's no doubt that this report found many egregious incidences of excessive force and abuse and probably even the use of deadly force unjustifiably on the part of the Minneapolis Police Department, although I'm unsure how far the DOJ will go in terms of pulling the curtain back on the horrific behaviors of Minneapolis police officers that, again, they've been allowed to get away with for so many years. So the one thing that folks here in the city are looking forward to hearing today, reform, and what will reform look like? Poppy?
1: Yeah. Adrienne, thank you. I'm glad you're there. Miami Mayor Francis Suarez making his first pitch to voters, offering an alternative to the other two Floridians who are currently in that Republican race for the White House. And you'll hear from him directly Next, live, right here on CNN This Morning.
0: Also new overnight, Pope Francis back at the Vatican after a nine-day hospital stay. He's recovering from a surgery. After leaving the hospital, he went to the Basilica of Santa Maria Maggiore to pray. The 86-year-old is feeling, quote, better than before. According to the Vatican, that is good news. The Pope will deliver his weekly prayer on Sunday.
12: America, I, Francis Suarez come as one who loves you, and one you have given every blessing to. And because I love this country, I want to serve it with humility and gratitude for all that you have done for me.
0: That is Miami Mayor Francis Suarez delivering his first speech as a presidential candidate. He did that at the Reagan Library in California last night. His bid considered a long shot in what has become a very crowded Republican presidential field. The 45-year-old Republican is a Cuban-American and two-time mayor of Miami. And we're happy to welcome him this morning to CNN this morning. Good morning. And let's begin with what you tweeted that really struck me because, of course, your dad was mayor as well. You said, my dad taught me that you get to choose your battles and I'm choosing the biggest of my life. You are jumping into this race, Mr. Mayor, with governors, with the senator, with the vice president and, of course, former President Trump. Why do you think you are better suited than all of them to be the commander in chief?
12: Well, good morning, Poppy. I think the reason why is because mayors are closest to the people and we deal with the real problems that people care about. We deal with crime. We deal with homelessness. We deal with mental health issues. These are the issues that people deal with and face on a daily basis. Um, In the city of Miami, we reduced taxes to the lowest level in history and we saw double digit growth. We invested in our police department and we had the lowest homicide rate per capita since 1964. I was born in 1977. Okay, this year we're 40 percent below that number, where well, we're seeing a crime spike throughout the country. And then the last thing is we focused on prosperity. We're number one in the nation in wage growth, and we have the lowest unemployment in America. And we did that by focusing on the next generation's economy. That's what we have to do as a country. We have to create prosperity, which leads to things like happiness, which also has great mental health outcomes.
0: Uh, Mr. Mayor, some of Some, even some of your fellow Republicans, even some Republicans in your state. Just worry that you don't have enough experience. Listen to this from Florida Republican Congressman Carlos Jimenez.
27: I don't think that he is uh, he's uh, qualified to be president of the United States uh, in any way, shape or form. Why is that? Well, because he's uh, he's he hasn't demonstrated the ability to lead uh, any large organization. The city of Miami, he's a ceremonial mayor of the city of Miami. He has very, very little power.
0: I'd like to give you a chance to respond.
12: Well, I think the skills that you need to be a president uh, uh, don't change based on the number of zeros, right? So uh, the courage that it takes, for example, to balance a budget, uh, the courage that it takes uh, to make radical change uh, in your city so that you create prosperity and you give educational opportunity to everyone, that has nothing to do with the number of zeros or the number of employees Mm -hmm. that you manage. Uh, Being able to inspire people, being able to uh, lead an organization, uh, whether it's 4,500 employees that we have in the city of Miami Or 450,000 or 4.5 million. It really doesn't matter. Who you are and how you project yourself is what really matters. And so, unfortunately, uh, I don't agree with with the former mayor on this one.
0: Okay, let's get to some policy issues. You stand out from some of your Republican competitors in this primary because of your position on climate change. The Republican platform in 2016 and 2020 reads, Climate change is far from this nation's most pressing national security issue. This is the triumph of extremism over common sense. Congress must stop it. Does the Republican Party need to change its stance on climate change, sir?
12: You know, in Miami, we like to say the environment is the economy. Um, We don't separate uh, one from the other. We don't make it a dichotomy of one or the other. We don't pit them against each other. We need uh, drinking water. It's an existential issue for us. So we need to make sure that our Everglades are clean. Uh, We we have ecotourism in our bay. So we want to make sure that our bay is healthy. And yes, we have hurricanes. We have dry day flooding uh, and we have things called rain bombs. So we've invested in resiliency and making sure that we can adapt to those climatic events. That's just good policy. Um, And I think, by the way, we've gotten money from a Republican controlled state legislature. Mm -hmm. uh, In fact, more than we've gotten so so far from from a, a Democrat controlled infrastructure bill.
0: So that sounds like a yes. You disagree with the Republican platform. Let's turn to abortion. The Associated Press says that you expressed in this interview you just did with them yesterday. You've expressed support for a 15 week federal ban on abortion. To be clear, then, you do not think that abortion is then an issue that should be left to the states. You would sign a 15 week federal ban.
12: You know, abortion is an incredibly personal and deeply personal issue. I think in states like New York, where they allow abortion up to birth, uh, I think that's barbaric.
0: That is not the the norm, Mr. Mayor, and you know that.
12: It may not be the norm, but it it is the case in some states. And so in Miami, where we have the fourth largest public hospital in America, I've seen babies in incubators at 22 weeks. That's something you can't unsee. Uh, I'm pro-life. My wife is pro-life. My three sisters are pro-life. My mother's pro-life. My parents met at a pro-life rally. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, and and my sister who has five kids, uh, you know, had uh, her fourth after knowing she was going to have genetic abnormality. So I think this is a deeply personal and difficult decision. We don't give it so, enough time uh, to discuss it. But yes, I would I would I would sign a 15-week ban because right. I think that that would save a tremendous amount of babies.
0: I appreciate you answering that question directly. I do want to ask you about something that a lot of people in Florida and Miami in particular are talking about and this is reporting out of the Miami Herald about your actions. Um, in terms of the consulting that you do, quote, sources told the Herald that he, meaning you, faced scrutiny by the FBI and local authorities for $10,000 monthly payments he received from a developer for consulting work while serving as a mayor. That is small potatoes compared to Trump's legal problems, but those fees look like a conflict of interest. <laughs> this is alleged to have just happened from August 2022 to March of this year. What is your response?
12: Well, you just said it. It's alleged to have happened from August uh, to March. I've been a public official, a working public official for 13 years. I've never had an issue, never had a scandal. Uh, and by the way, most mayors in Dade County work. 31 out of 34 mayors work. All of a sudden, they start talking about the possibility of running for president. And, the and these allegation things start to surface, a uh, developer. Uh,
0: the allegation is that a developer that paid you ten grand a month, $170,000 total, you helped him get these city permits. Did you?
12: Did you? Did you? Right. And
5: it's did completely you put your false. thumb on no, the scale?
12: Abso- absolutely not. OK. Ab- absolutely not. I had no knowledge of what was going on in the city. And uh, he was able to get his permits without my okay. intervention. None whatsoever. It's never happened and it's never going to happen.
0: All right. Finally, I do want to ask you about Trump. I know you've said people shouldn't focus on the Trump indictment. And that's why we talked about a whole lot of other issues. But it is important that you weigh in on this. You're running against you. him. You told ABC News yesterday that a lot of Republicans are telling you this indictment is not an equal administration of justice. You're a registered Republican. You're running for president. Do, do you share that view of Jack Smith's investigation?
12: You know, that is what people feel. And I think what happens what is do you, there's a What do you feel, Mr.
0: Mayor? Uh, between what, do what, do you what people think? feel. <clears throat> what do you think?
12: Uh, well, I... I think that there that there is an unequal administration of justice. When you see in the Comey investigation, for example, of Hillary Clinton's email server, where he says that she has broken potentially federal laws, but she doesn't think that he doesn't think it should be prosecuted. That's prosecutorial discretion. I think what we should do as a country is focus on the issues that matter to people. And this is a distraction. This creates a toxic environment in our country. And I think it's not healthy for us to to, to focus on that.
0: In the findings on Secretary Clinton, Director Comey said it was not willful. One of the key charges here is 31 charges, felony charges of willful retention of classified documents. You're a lawyer. You're a practicing lawyer. Do the allegations, look at all of these in in this indictment, including willful retention of classified documents, obstruction of justice, do they concern you, sir?
12: Of course they concern me, and I think... Uh, you know, the, the willfulness uh, question will be determined obviously throughout the, the trial, and, and, and the former president is presumed innocent until proven guilty, like everyone is in America. And a lot of defendants feel like they're unfairly prosecuted throughout this country. So um, that will be what the case turns on, whether it was willful or not. I certainly uh, would have turned over the documents uh, immediately, um, because that's, that's what I would have done. But we've seen situations where other public officials, high-ranking public officials, kept classified documents. I think for regular people like me, we don't really understand what that means, why, why that happens. Uh, we, we can't understand why any public official wouldn't just turn over all classified materials at the end of their presidency or vice presidency or whatever. It's just a bewildering situation uh, for everybody.
0: Miami Mayor Francis Suarez, we really appreciate your time. Please come back.
12: Thank you, Poppy, for sure.
1: Thank you. Be well. Erica. All right, you may be packing right now to travel for the holiday weekend. I want to give you a little warning here. The airport's Gonna be a little busy today. We'll take a closer look at what the TSA is expecting. Also, what we're learning this morning about a strike vote that could severely impact the economy.
0: More CNN This Morning to come after the break. As you get started, With your morning on this Friday, here are five things for you to know. A verdict expected today in the Pittsburgh mass shooting trial. Robert Bowers accused of killing 11 worshipers at the Tree of Life synagogue in 2018. If convicted,
1: there will be a separate penalty phase for the same jury to decide on whether the death penalty is warranted. More major decisions are expected to be handed down when the Supreme Court convenes today. It's unclear which opinions will come, but we do know some of the big cases, uh, which we have not yet heard a ruling on, concern affirmative action, student loans, and LGBTQ
0: rights. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said to take off for Beijing later today in a trip aimed at warming up. China's frosty relationship with the United States. This marks the most senior visit to China by an
1: American official in five years. Attorneys working on former President Trump's classified documents case need to reach out to the Justice Department by today to get security clearance. That's the first order that came from the judge overseeing that case and underscores the sensitive nature of the documents involved here that the former president is accused of withholding. Also, more than 300,000 Teamster UPS
0: drivers expected to authori- authorize a big strike today when they vote. It comes after months of contract negotiations negotiations over sticking points like higher pay and creating more full-time jobs. UPS has an estimated six percent of U.S. GDP. That's what they hold. If approved, this strike could severely damage the economy. Five things you need to know this morning. More on these all day right here on CNN and CNN.com. And don't forget to download the five things podcast every
1: morning. Uh, Well, today is expected to be one of the busiest summer travel days. Why? It is a holiday weekend, of course. This is just ahead of Juneteenth, which celebrates Black history and freedom and is now a federal holiday. And increasingly, that new federal holiday is really packing airports around the country, so who better to talk to than our good friend Pete Muntean at Reagan National Airport, his home away from home. So, Pete, give me a sense. Just how busy is this <laughs> going to be this weekend? Are we talking about busier than Memorial Day, July 4th, all of them?
20: You know, almost add Juneteenth to the list of those holidays. You know, the federal holiday is not until Monday, Erica. But things have been really busy here at an airports across the country. In fact, the line at one point was past where I'm standing here at the Terminal 2 North checkpoint here at Reagan National Airport. million people screened by TSA at airports across the country yesterday. That is 14% higher than the same day last year. In fact, almost reached the post-2020 high mark that we saw on the Friday before Memorial Day when 2.74 million people were screened. So only about 10,000 people shy. The numbers all week have been huge. Above 2.4 million people each day. And here's what's happening, really a confluence of things, not only the federal holiday of Juneteenth, but also more states recognizing it. It's Father's Day weekend and, of course, the kickoff to summer travel that happened back on Memorial Day. In fact, it will be even busier in the air than we have seen since the depths of the pandemic. The FAA says it anticipated 52 1, flights nationwide yesterday, scheduled by air carriers, about 50,000 today. It dips off a little bit, then comes back bigger even next weekend. So, this is really a huge holiday weekend for travel. Add it to the list with Memorial Day, Labor Day, July 4th. We're really seeing the genesis of what will be a big holiday weekend for years to come. There's also a lot of pent up demand because of the depths of the pandemic. So, That is causing people to really pay for it. $288 is the average round-trip ticket, according to travel site Hopper. Although, this weekend, people are really paying more, about
0: $318, Erica. I don't know the last time I have seen a $280 ticket. No.
1: I paid $193 for a what? one, way for, a low to me one too. way for my son to go from Indiana to New York City. One so, way. That yeah. was one way. Yeah. That's, that's the only time I saw it under $200. <laughs> Pete, appreciate it. Thank you.
0: So Montana's Constitution, this is so interesting, by the way, promises a clean environment for present and future generations. Next, you're going to meet the so-called climate kids who are challenging the state's government actions because they say they are violating the Constitution. They're doing
5: this on behalf of the planet. And I hope that as a young person, we might actually have a chance to make a difference. And for for my life and for my kid's life, you know, not all hope may be lost. Smoke from
0: those Canadian wildfires are once again bringing really poor air air quality to the United States. Millions in the Midwest under air quality alerts as that smoke continues to move south. Here is the smoky skyline in Chicago yesterday. The hazy skies of my home state, Minnesota, my mom told me, they had the worst air quality yesterday. Just FYI, I said we got that last week. The smoke is forecast to push further south over the next few days.
1: Montana is emerging as a key climate battleground state right now. A fight there is brewing between the state itself and a group of kids who have now sued the state. And they're arguing that its support of fossil fuels is in direct violation of their constitutional rights. CNN's chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir, has more.
27: In big sky country, it's a story fit for a big screen.
5: We love you, guys. We love you.
27: On one side, 16 young people from ranches, reservations, and boomtowns across Montana, ranging in age from five to 22. On the other side, the Republican-led state of Montana, which lost a three-year fight to keep this case out of court, but is still determined to let fossil fuels keep flowing, despite the warnings from science that burning them will only melt more glaciers, blacken more skies, and ravage more rivers. Based on the evidence, you've seen, does it point to harm for these you plaintiffs? Harm now and accelerating
18: harm in the future.
27: And the whole plot pivots around the Montana Constitution that promises the state shall maintain and improve a clean and healthful environment for present and future generations.
26: They've filed
27: seven different motions to try and have the case dismissed. And none of those motions have been successful. While the first week included scientists testifying to the data. Dr. Stanford
20: has fishing for bull trout and native cutthroat trout already been impacted
9: by climate change.
27: Oh, very definitely. The emotion has come from plaintiffs laying out their stories of loss.
7: You know, it's really scary seeing what you care for disappear right in front of your eyes.
27: How does it make you feel knowing
21: that the state is not considering climate impacts in its permitting decisions?
24: Makes me feel like the state is prioritizing profits over people um, because they know that there is visible harm coming to the land and to the people, and they're still choosing to make money instead of care for Montanans.
27: While the state's attorneys briefly question a plaintiff's ability to connect her mental health to the climate, they've mainly saved cross examination for the experts.
23: If the judge ordered that we stop using fossil fuels in Montana, would that get us to the point where these plaintiffs are no longer being harmed, in your opinion? We can't
20: tell in advance because what has been shown in history over and over and over again is when a significant social movement is needed, it often is started by one or two or three people.
22: I know that climate change
5: is a global issue, but. We take responsibility for our part of that. And can't you know, just blow it up and
27: do about it. Judge Kathy Seeley doesn't have the power to shut down any extraction or usage of fossil fuels. But a judgment for the young plaintiffs could set a powerful precedent for our children's trust. I think we're really at a tipping point right now. The Oregon nonprofit is also helping kids in Hawaii sue their state over tailpipe emissions. And they've revived Juliana v. United States, the federal case that could end up before the Supreme Court.
5: I just recently graduated high school, but I I think it's something everyone knows is that we have three branches of government for a reason. The judicial branch is there to keep a check on the other two branches, Mm -hmm. and that's what we're doing here.
27: Claire Vlasis grew up in beautiful, booming Bozeman, and like the other kids too young to vote, she sees the courts as the only place for someone like her to have a voice.
5: It's hard knowing the power to make changes in the hands of other people,
14: mm-hmm. especially
5: my government. Mm-hmm. And I hope that as a young person, you know, we might actually have a chance to make a difference. And for my, for my life and for my kids' life, you know, not all hope may be lost.
27: Always the kids. Always the kids. <laughs> it's, always,
0: it's always the kids, right? And all the state, like they have the highest uh, stakes here. Exactly. So I just said you in the middle of the piece. How can they lose given that language in the constitution is so
27: explicit? But well, that language was put in in 1972. That is a fascinating convention where 100 grassroots people, no politicians, came and rewrote the state's constitution. And at the time, the the, the evidence of environmental destruction was so great, they put that in. I don't think that the Republicans have a chance to take that out of the Constitution right now. But we'll see what kind of defense they put up, whether they counter the science of climate change at all, whether they say, you know, the economy is just too dependent on this to, to do anything about it. But it really is a tipping point as people try to use the courts to get some action because legislations have done nothing. So interesting.
1: It is fascinating. It's such a great story. Bill, thank you. you bet. Uh, and stick around, because you're going to weigh in on this next one. Psychedelic mushrooms. Could they? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did you know so that, liar. Why are they making me stay for this yes. one? <laughs> Get ready. Hand them over. We're not doing a taste test, oh, though. Special okay. tea right ahead. Uh, <laughs> oh, mushrooms. Could they be the future of <laughs> mental health care? <gasps> Our colleague David Culver went on a wellness retreat, tried it out for himself. He joins us live
0: in studio with the whole story next. I didn't know you tried it. Yeah. Oh, wow.
14: Oh, yeah. okay. He had
1: to be able to really report?
14: With the cabling scan, we can look at the health of the fibers. We'll see their health before and after your trip to Jamaica.
21: And the trip while in Jamaica.
14: <laughs> yeah, right.
21: Trips, I guess there'll be two of them.
14: Yeah.
0: Quite a moment for research on psychedelics. In this case, we're specifically talking about Psilocybin, known as magic mushrooms. They are being studied for their potential therapeutic effects on conditions like depression, anxiety, and substance abuse. And while it is illegal on the federal level, Oregon became the first state this year to legalize magic mushrooms for therapeutic use. And in countries where they are legal already, some people are turning to wellness retreats. Watch this. Mm-hmm.
21: Embarking on a psychedelic trip thank you, requires a willingness to be vulnerable, to hold nothing back.
5: This wasn't easy, I imagine, for any of you to just say, Yeah, let me jump in. And you're here for a reason.
21: Thank you. Documenting it with cameras for a story to be shared with the world? Well, that suggests a near total surrender to the unknown.
0: Let go, let go with it and just go with the flow.
21: The experiences you're about to witness, they're intimate. They're exhilarating and exhausting. After taking a dose of psilocybin, the psychoactive compound in magic mushrooms, you wait.
0: Psilocybin brings you what you need,
1: not what you want.
21: David. Hi, good morning. This Hi,
1: good David
0: morning. Culver. Sorry, we're so entranced by this. This is your incredible
21: reporting. And you it was, it was uh, a journey, uh, not the kind of trip I thought I'd be uh, here on <laughs> yeah. TV talking to you guys about at
1: but in it, the morning.
21: But, but yeah. it's so
1: interesting. So you went there to Jamaica, right, as part yeah. of your reporting, as part of your research. All of the people we were just talking about um, in the break briefly, yeah. they agreed to let you film what they were experiencing on one condition.
21: That I went along with it.
1: Yeah.
21: I, look, so I'm, I'm, I'm big on immersive reporting. I feel like, you know, that's part of what I did in Wuhan early. Mm-hmm. That's part of what I did living through lockdown and some of the extreme conditions of, of China and Shanghai in particular, and even, you know, covering the, the migrant crisis at the border mm-hmm. and going along on a freight train. This was this was an opportunity to, to go forward with it, yes, but to do it in, in a respectful and, and hopefully appropriate way. I hope that's how it comes across because it, it's so intimate. It's so personal. And for these individuals in particular, it's something that they really we're gonna divulge a lot of their personal lives on camera so that, in, in their words, it could potentially help others. And we say potential because it's not for everyone. And, and actually experts have weighed on, in on this. We can play a little bit so you can get a sense of what folks are saying in this industry right now.
16: So many mental health issues are based on a kind of rigidity, a stuckness. The psilocybin experience helps kind of break that up. <sighs>
14: That doesn't mean it could treat everything in psychiatry, but I think it is realistic to think that this could be a breakthrough in mental health care.
21: Sounds promising, but by no means a
17: cure-all. Psychedelics may not be entirely safe for people who have a personal or family history of psychosis. Patients with bipolar disorder, may be at great risk of
18: taking psychedelic drugs and having another manic episode. The risks come in more
16: psychologically, right? Because without support, in some cases, it could be destabilizing.
21: That's a huge part of this, yeah. the support factor, right? And you see therapeutic is listed there. And that's kind of my approach to this in, in coming in is, is I was comfortable doing it. First of all, my doctor evaluated it fully, and I wanted to do it after, you know, hearing the potential mm-hmm. benefits, but also knowing that the folks would be more comfortable going along with me. How was I your a trip, though?
27: That's what I'm dying to know. So we did two doses. <laughs> uh,
21: the first one was uneventful, not much of anything. Really? The second one was a trip. It was... It was um, this is going to sound so L.A. and out there, but it takes you to places that I didn't expect to go. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm such a, a rule follower, Bill. Like, I mean, this is, this is something that's so different for me. I didn't drink before it was legal. I sat on yeah. the judicial council in college. So this was so, <laughs> of you did. My, my family and friends are going to say, you did what? Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? But, but this was, um, it was emotional. It was draining. Yeah. Uh, and and it's so much to get in in an hour, but it was also so many places that I went to on a, on a deeper inner level that I'm grateful for. To be honest, I walk away feeling yeah at so, peace. So
1: it was yeah. there was it therapeutic? It was
21: it was surprisingly therapeutic for mm-hmm. me, and that's the thing. I mean, I think I had these experiences in China too, where I was trying to process after being disconnected and isolated from my family for two and a half years mm-hmm. and not seeing them, and I have a very close knit Cuban no. family, so that was tough. But I mean, having, having the opportunity to process that, and then I lost, you know, like many people during COVID, folks who I, I couldn't properly mourn with my family with. And, and to feel their energies come, come to me in that moment, I'll get emotional even thinking about it. But yeah, to, 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 to feel them in uh, and, and that moment was something I did not expect. I mean, I'm, I was kind of blown away by it. That said, I, I know it, it is not for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and some folks, even on our retreat, one in particular walked away saying, didn't do anything mm-hmm. for me.
27: It's so fascinating, right? I've been... Yeah. People in my circles have done ayahuasca retreats, yeah. which are all the vogue. And I just read a story about a research, a guy in Chicago took MDMA, who was sort of a virulent white nationalist, and it changed him. He It says really? it tapped him into love for the first time. And... Uh, And that stuck
1: with him. And that stuck with him. It changed his personality. Yeah,
27: there's a story out of the BBC on this. So I think we're just beginning to understand what these things, how they interact. Was now was that a structured setting? To it was. It was a University of Chicago research project. I think that makes a
21: huge difference too. It's Mm -hmm. not just taking this recreationally. It's it's taking it with the lead up, the preparation, and then also the integration on the back end, and making sure that it's done in a mindful
27: manner.
1: And is it someone leading you to that to that point. It's someone leading you through. This. Absolutely, you're it's, not just experiencing it on your own. There's a guide
27: yeah. who's who's talking to you and bringing you back out of it, that yeah. sort of thing. And yeah.
21: in the case, yeah, we had the guide. And in the case of these medical, you know, professionals on this retreat, they were around us too. And I went up to one of the nurses who had dealt with really bad trips in in her years covering, you know, psychiatric situations, and she's like, "I'm with you. I'll be with you throughout this." And and you know, physically, they're holding your hand and they're guiding you through it. So it's a journey. We
0: cannot wait to see the entire hour. Wow. Immersive reporting at its best, as David Culver always does. Thank you both. Bill, thank you for sticking around with us and for your great reporting. The all-new episode of The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper. That is David's remarkable reporting. It airs this Sunday, 8 p.m. Eastern, only right here. And Pacific, by the way, only right here on CNN.
1: Uh, We are following news out of Texas this morning in the wake of a devastating tornado, which we know has left at least three people dead, uh, as many as 100 people injured. We have our crews there live on the ground in Perryton. We're going to get you updated right after this break. Stay with us. A devastated mother turning her pain into power. When this week's CNN Hero lost her two-year-old son in a hit and run on her block, she decided she needed a way to channel her trauma into something positive meet the incredible Mama Shoe.
3: After Jacoby got killed, I needed to, this basically change grief into glory, pain into power. Folks thought that I was crazy, like that lady crazy, talking about she about to buy that block and fix it up because they didn't see. I saw crystal clear what it could look like. It took about eight years or so to actually clean up the block. We started buying the lots next door, and now we have 45. It was so many things inside of my head that I wanted to actually build for the people. I felt that that is what we deserve. Beauty is healing. You can change your environment. You really can. Sometimes I just sit and I just smile, but then I say, you know what, I'm not done yet.
1: Not done yet. To see more of Mama Shoes' incredible work, just visit cnnheroes.com. And while you're there, you can also nominate your hero. Thanks for being my hero today,
0: as uh, always. Uh, Sarah back got you, sister. Have a great weekend. You too. Enjoy. Everyone have a great weekend. CNN News Central starts now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.